Greetings, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Miguel, tis I. Doing our Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, and it is the 25th of May... It is session 15, which makes this episode 16. That's my understanding of how this thing works. Boy. Yeah, that sounds about right. Wait. No, no. Wait. Did you get it backwards? Episode 1. The session should be one less than the episode. Session 0. That's right. That's, but I did have an incident with this recently when I tried to help out with the WordPress. And I was like, well, which... Oh, my God. Which episode was which thing luckily you would you had notes that were uh very helpful for getting myself straightened out there we really confused ourselves on this one unnecessarily i guess we should have called it episode zero i don't know it's the reality of session zero what are you gonna do um so we're back at it it's uh the second campaign for mcgill He's got a. We're in the chapter four for him, and for me, we're just keep on going. Session fifteen. It's the second arc of my campaign, my first campaign in five e. And uh, I guess is there anything we want to say before we just jump into it? Um, I uh, gosh, who's going first? We prepped I think poorly. I'll go didn't first we? because mine like picks up pretty much right from where I left off, if that's cool. Yeah, you should do first. All right, so when we left off, we had our heroes, Empok's Finest. Uh, so we've got Valfar Eindragling Guy, the black metal, black dragon-born bard. We have uh, Magnus, the one-eyed uh, dwarven alcoholic paladin of... Uh, Garador, the blind god of destruction, this drunken dwarven paladin. We've got uh, Mealy, uh, an elven thief from another world. And we have Alistair Infernus, an infernal warlock who has just recently entered the services of the archdevil Mephisto. And currently, our heroes have been deployed to the eighth level of hell where Mephistopheles reigns. Um, in order to hunt down their enemies, the Nightside Eclipse, these undead cultists who, for whatever reason, broke into hell. Seems a strange course of action, but last session we found out that they were breaking into hell, at least on the one hand, to uh, basically break out some key personnel that they had within that layer of hell, and they... uh, rescued an old advisor of their leader uh so the leader is by the name mourner sort of an undead conqueror sort almost like a crusader and then he busted out his old advisor uh who is now the hag carmen the immortal and he also got a lieutenant out but the lieutenant fell uh, defending their escape as the Empok's finest caught up with these dastardly individuals as they were in the course of their uh, infernal breakout. So, 
At this point, we have um, half the party has indebted themselves to Mephistopheles merely to uh, get infernal favors to help her reshape the course of her homeworld's future. And Alistair, just for the great power, the promise of the power of Hellfire, which is something that naturally interests him as a pyromaniac warlock. Um... And where we left off, it was after the breakout, so the Lieutenant Constantine the Blind fought off, um, or rather, he he was in charge of the defense against the Empox Finest in Hell, while Carmen and Mourner uh, beat a hasty retreat, and where we pick up this session... The Empox Finest are attempting to hunt down these uh, remaining missing figures. And one thing I actually realized going through the notes or what little notes I have for this session is that um, I think I thought that last session they had actually defeated Constantine the Blind, but he actually got away as well. He was, like, he sort of faced off with them as they were making their escape. But he also fled. And so, um, in this session, they fight Constantine the Blind again, and this time, spoiler alert, for the last time. But, um, I just, there was something about this, uh, session that I was like, isn't there something, like, I was for some reason I was thinking of the uh the creatures Grimlocks, which are eyeless monsters in Dungeons and Dragons. They're blind blind humanoid monsters. And I was like, was there like Grimlocks or something? And then I remembered Constantine the Blind. Of course. It was that blind guy. So um what this leads us to is I mentioned last time that the eighth layer of hell, Kanya and Mephistopheles in Dungeons and Dragons lore has a lot of background about hellfire, this this super powerful infernally charged fire that Mephistopheles uh created or controls um and how there's, you know, Kanya is this frozen hellscape but with these citadels and there are uh academies where devils are working on hellfire and whatnot but i mentioned last session that while i know a lot of this background stuff now i only knew so much of it back when i ran this campaign and so i know that at the time i was pretty unaware of things like the hellfire academy and so um that in particular didn't get explored as much, although I, you know, I mentioned uh, I did another campaign where I came back to Kenya after this one and managed to explore it more fully. But so basically I, I wanted like a hook, some extra thing that the Nightside Eclipse could be trying to get out of... Um, Cania, the eighth layer of hell and i ended up coming up with my own uh essential strategic resource 
which is I decided that in Cania, in this like frozen hellscape, um, there would be like mines underneath the wasteland, like basically partly just as like uh like labor camps for the various people who are like you know slaving away in the punishment of hell but i also wanted to have them you know specifically mining something and so i came up with this um imaginary fictional substance called insomnium which in my setting is basically a crystalline substance that you mine from uh, subterranean areas in the eighth layer of hell and then it can be crushed up and then used as like basically as a super powerful stimulant that is very Skuma. addictive but has what's that skooma yeah sure but the the um it also has like really bad and heavy withdrawal effects like particularly um like if you crash on insomnium it's like it it really uh it's really debilitating um similarly like if you overdose it just like completely exhausts your system and whatnot and uh part of this is also there's a metal band called insomnium and so it's a bit of a shout out to them but it's also like i kind of just wanted this substance to exist um and yeah i i like the idea of having a substance like a an illicit substance narcotic that is being mined from beneath the surface of hell. And so um, what this session led to was uh, there was a mine that had stopped producing, and so the Mpox Finest uh, were sent in to basically, like, of course, the reason it wasn't producing was because that was where the Nightside Eclipse were secretly hanging out. And... Uh, so Mpox Finest had to move in and uh, retake this insomnium mine. And in the process, uh, continue to like drive drive back and drive out these Nightside Eclipse intruders that existed in the eighth layer of hell. Um, so as I mentioned, this was the final fight with uh, Constantine the Blind. He uh, once again faced them as sort of like the guy in charge of defending the mine. And once again, he was the guy who sort of, you know, they took down him, but while they were fighting him, Mortar and Carmen got away through their portal back to the material plane, uh, taking the action once again out of hell and back to the material plane of Drail. But uh, in the meantime, uh, what we had was sort of a, like a tactical combat encounter very stealth focus that was like moving through caverns, you know, converging on a point where the Nightside Eclipse had their sort of base camp and then like quickly initiating like, you know, people would attack from different angles. The uh, Warlock Alistair would throw a fireball. Magnus would go charging in. Melee would get the sneak attack. Valfar would be on crowd control with his bard abilities and like, it was really uh, like a surgical tactical assault on this nightside eclipse encampment in this subterranean mine in hell um, with the, you know, uh, <laughs> blessing of the devils in charge. 
And uh, yeah, with with the end of this session, the action continued back into Drail because they pursued the Nightside Eclipse right back to their escape portal, um, which happened to deploy back to the material plane. So they were followed back to the material plane? Yes. How did you run that in the adventure? So initially, I think the thing was like, okay, the your your they were like attacking the um the mine and they were fighting uh Constantine the blind and whatnot. But in the process, it's like, oh, but you see that, like, there are Nightside Eclipse sort of, like, fleeing into the depths of the mine. And uh, so I think... I think it was merely specifically ran just to, like, get a view to the portal that they were escaping through. And through that, she was able to confirm, like, like she managed to just catch Mourner and Carmen um, escaping through the portal. And at that point, they still were, <clears throat> like, the battle in the mine was still raging at that point. So Mia Lee, like, managed to spot that and see that they were fleeing away through the portal. But, you know, they she couldn't immediately follow behind them. So the party continued to fight Constantine the Blind and, uh, you know, wiped out the Nightside Eclipse in the mine, at which point they went through the portal and they found themselves, like, I don't think they knew where they were necessarily when they got through the portal, but, like, they, when they had wiped out the Nightside Eclipse in the mine, knowing that the Nightside Eclipse had also been fleeing through the portal and that, like, the main targets, Mourner and Carmen, mainly Mourner, like, he he was the big target for this arc because he was sort of, like, the guy in charge of, like, the, the boss henchman in charge of this uh, operation for the Nightside Eclipse. Once they saw, once Mealy had confirmed that he had gone through the portal, they were like, okay, well, we gotta push the advantage and follow right behind him. Um, but where they came out, they were actually like just in the middle of a forest, which I knew was they were back in Drail. I don't know if they could immediately tell, but I think, you know, at the same time, they weren't immediately going through a portal into an enemy base or like some weird plane either. So they basically found themselves in a forest and they were like, okay, well, we got to track these guys down and... I think they started to do that, but that's that's basically where we broke, is, like, they had just jumped right out of hell in pursuit of their enemies and uh, left off in the forest they found themselves in. We pick, off the, we pick up the next session. The reason I was asking about how you ran it is in your initial description, it sounds suspiciously, suspiciously like the party retreating, and in my experience, the party never seems to retreat, even if it's a good idea. So I'm glad we got clarification. Oh, no, it's the opposite of the, the party retreating. It's the enemy retreating and the party, like, consolidating more than anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool. So they're they're sort of, like, in and out of hell over the course of, what, two adventures? 
Yeah, it's um I definitely spent more time in hell when I went back to this idea in the second campaign. But uh yeah, I think it it, it was effectively broken down into two adventures, the first being like or yeah, two or three. You know, you have the one that is more like just sort of like a meet and greet with Mephistopheles. Then you have the one that's sort of like um, touring a prison in hell. And then you have this one that's like an attack on a an, inv- an invaded labor camp. Grim, grim stuff, but I wanted like... You know, I wanted to give Hell some level of its character, you know? Like, I didn't want... Um, there's something about Cania as a frozen hellscape that really invites the image of, like, an infernal gulag kind of thing. And uh, obviously these are high-tension places for players to go. And uh, also, I like, I didn't want Hell to just be a different fantasy plane. I wanted it to be, like a place where bad people get punished and whatnot. Well, yeah, I mean, it's hell. It has to live up to the name and the expectation. It can't just be, like, uh, the the most bare bones, like, a red desert. It's funny that I say that, though, because I've totally done, like, a plane of the abyss is the red desert, but... <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, some planes gotta be that, but I I just think that, like, you know, I think... Three adventures, as it were, was like enough to set the tone that I wanted and and get what I wanted to happen happening. But um, I definitely did a lot more sort of setting work again the the next time I did this. This is almost like a prototype for the next time that I came back to Cania, which is like in a sort of sequel context to this one. Cool. We can look forward to that on a future episode. And insomnium, and, and insomnium continues to be an element in my settings for a long, long time. So there's a lot of ideas. Like I think with the Nightside Eclipse, they were taking some of it because it could be used to sort of like energize their undead minions and whatnot, and like have more like uh, you know fast uh, twenty eight days later type zombies or like more ravenous ghouls. Um, the other thing is that uh, I've sort of had, I've definitely had stuff in my setting where like there's experiments in health potions where like people have developed more effective health potions by incorporating insomnium and things like that. Neat. This is what I'm talking about, about your, your game worlds seem to have a far greater continuity than the ones that I run. Insomnium is still in play even now. I mean, I guess it's easy when I only started with so much. It's not like I'm having to keep up every detail of Space 1889 that I uh, have uh, managed to pick up in the book. Like, this is all just me coming up with, like, one fantasy idea at a time, I guess. <laughs> well, fair enough. Is there anything else you want to touch upon in your adventure? No, I think I would just say that that one fantasy idea at a time, like it may seem um, a bit slow or meager at first. Like uh, obviously my notes are a lot more robust for the uh, second campaign than this first one. But like, you know, that 
one fantasy idea at a time um, process can it can build up a really useful base for when you start getting into like some more high fantasy complex stuff as I'm finding out. So what about your game? Chapter four, The Dead Man's Hand. Um, this adventure picked up, similarly to yours, it sort of picked up hot on the heels of the events of the previous adventure. But uh, I don't know, there was a bit of a break to it as well, just because of how I had structured this section of the campaign. I talked about it a bit on last episode, about how I wanted to treat uh, the player's arrival in San Francisco as sort of like a mission hub uh, like you'd find in something like Borderlands. You know, you get to a new location in Borderlands and it's a hub for all these little side quests and also story missions. And so in treating San Francisco that way, when the players arrived, I presented them immediately with a bunch of different things that were going on that are clearly plot hooks and worthy of their investigation. And it was up to them to pick and choose how to tackle those things. And uh, it also reminds me of the game uh, Alpha Protocol. I don't know if you I ever never play did that. Play Alpha you're, Protocol. You're a super spy, and you get uh, you get your choice of which which safe house you want to go to. And there's one in Rome, one in Hong Kong or uh, Taiwan. I, I can't remember. And one in Moscow. And like you can choose, you can go to them in any order. And each one has like a bunch of different missions all over the city. And you can do those in any order. And it gets affected like. If you get a clue in one place, then it will change the way uh, something goes in a different place, and it's pretty neat. Also, it's real places, just like your game right now. And I, I will say that there were a number of things that didn't quite... It, I didn't have quite the cause and effect level of that, where like they'd change something in one adventure and it would you know butterfly effect its way down the timeline. But uh, also, as I mentioned last episode... Uh, in order to pull this off, I wanted to give my players, like, just the, the total illusion of choice and make it feel like no matter what they did or where they went, there was an intricate adventure waiting for them. And so to do that, I poached a lot from campaign modules, things of that nature, Dungeon Magazine. And so... Uh, for this one, uh, I, I did a bit of poaching from a couple of places. Uh, there is a quick draw competition uh, adventure set up in the D20 Past campaign module. And I also borrowed some of the elements of uh, a, a D20 modern module called Sagebrush Horror by uh, Darren Drader. And... In going back through my notes on this one and just sort of, again, thinking about how I took a more cannibal approach to this campaign rather than the last one and stole, poached, you know, borrowed, lifted, however you want to put it, uh, just elements from all these different things, uh, I remembered, again, part of my motive in doing that, and it's just to sort of... It's to make things simple for myself. So what I would do, like in the case of Sagebrush Horror, and we'll get more into it as I describe the plot, but, you know, I've got this short 10-page uh, little self-contained adventure module, and what I would do is I, I would take things like the location map 
and the NPCs, and I just reskin everything so that it fit with my campaign setting. So I didn't run like the full module, but like the main big encounter where the players, you know, run into obviously like the main villain of this adventure. That whole thing is just a reskinned version of what you can find in Sagebrush Horror. So it's, it really is sort of this, you know, Frankenstein patchwork quilt thing that I'm doing. But it paid off really well because I remember my players just feeling like they had total control over where they went. And I, I definitely managed to pull off that illusion that, like, every person they encounter has a very rich and in-depth backstory. And the reason for that is that all those NPCs, their backstories are all, like, written out here in this adventure module. I just gave them, you know, characteristics that are more appropriate to the setting. Um... So, last adventure, the players uh, infiltrated a secret facility they discovered, and they discovered that uh, the Germans and the Martians, uh, a race of Martians uh, who didn't like the High Martians, had banded together, formed an alliance, and were, you know, basically planning on starting a war, world domination, lives are at stake... You know, uh, every, everything, everything's getting big very quickly. The players infiltrated the base, didn't do a great job, caused a lot of chaos, uh, ransacked some file rooms, and then beat a hasty retreat, uh, again, leaving chaos in their wake. And they, as they're flying away in the lantern, a storm is picking up. And uh, this is one of those things, I know I talked about it, I'm trying to remember exactly what I talked Oh, it was the desert. It was when, in Minds of Metal and Wheels Part 1, the players had crash-landed on Mars and found themselves in a Martian desert. And as I said then, like, don't just settle for the basics, right? I could have just had the Lantern fly back to San Francisco Harbor, uh, it's, you know, on a normal night, and they get away just fine, but no. Let's have a storm. I have a storm brewing, and I know that the once the players arrive at the, the docks, they're going to be given another mission that they have to tackle right away. So I wanted atmosphere. Uh, the waves are choppy. Uh, rain's coming down. The players land the lantern back at the docks, and they can see uh, a team of men with horses and a steam-driven stagecoach that are like playing a tug-of-war with a zeppelin that's threatening to come loose from its moorings. Uh, just giving the whole scene a sense of atmosphere and urgency. And they arrive, and uh, their contact, Art Mortimer, the local marshal, uh, he sees them coming, and he's riding down the docks on his horse, and he pulls up short, and he goes, there's been another murder, where have you been? And so they immediately have to, like, get into the murder investigation, uh, get hot on the trail, because, uh, you know, the clues are still fresh, but they're being threatened to be washed away by the rain. And, uh... So I, I have the players uh, follow him immediately to the scene of the crime where someone has been murdered. Uh, Bill McPhill is the name of the NPC. This guy is from the Dead Man's Hands section of D20 Past. He's just a gunslinger. And I had uh, Lady Anna and Gregor and Thomas Morwood meet him in the Four Aces Saloon uh, when they arrived in San Francisco. Uh, and just, like, had a brief encounter enough that they recognize him where they now find him. And he's dead in an alley. He's been torn apart by a big animal. But, uh, no. yeah, Bill McPhill, we hardly knew ye. 
Uh, He's been torn to shreds. Uh, well, I mean, okay, torn to shreds is an exaggeration. His his guts have just been ripped out, but his carcass is still lying there. Uh, there are huge claw marks all over the walls and several large animal paw prints on the ground. The, I suspect a werewolf. Oh, you know, I, I'll say you are on the right track, but I didn't want to make this... I didn't want to make this too expected and uh this is the thing is i think it's too obvious if it's a werewolf exactly too obvious if it's a werewolf first thing anybody thinks of um so here again i'm i'm only right now i'm only feeding you information through the perspective of the players let me take you behind the dm screen a bit there is a werewolf but he is not the animal that has been killing the livestock and the people uh he is actually one of the gunslingers who's in town for the the gunfight tournament and poker tournament and werewolf gunslingers man yeah and i so what i wanted to do Classic. with him the character's name is nathan garrett and he's going to be my dmpc for this adventure and so ah. i i had this very careful balancing act that i had to pull off here my players completely distrusted my DMPCs because of the last steampunk campaign where uh he doesn't even sound that different from peck and paw like exactly exactly yeah real you made this hard for yourself exactly uh, but but i i figured what i could do is i could go about it by doing the opposite trick of what i did with peck and paw whereas rather than meeting Peckinpah and he's there clearly trying to help them out and he's you know he seems like he's on their side he's got prior knowledge I wanted to have it be that they're going to meet this guy in really bad circumstances that make him look like a villain and uh and then he'd have to earn their trust and by earning their trust finally they'd probably be able to accept him into the party so one way that I wanted to sort of divert uh, divert animosity away from him was by having it be a fake out. There is a werewolf here, but the werewolf is not the thing that is causing the murders. So the party investigates uh, Ladyana, Dietrich Avendroth, Thomas Warwood, Rath McGrath. Uh, they investigate the scene of the crime. They find two types of paw prints canine but also big feline paw prints uh in investigating the the corpse abendroth finds a big fang a, a canine tooth but not necessarily from a canine stuck into uh bill mcphill's hand and he's like holding on to it um and then as the players are in and they they can see some Tracks leading off in different directions. Again, claw marks all over the walls. There was clearly some big fight here. But as they're investigating, uh, the wife of another one of the, the residents of San Francisco runs over to the marshal and says that her husband was just attacked outside their home by some kind of creature. And so the players, like, have to pick up the pace. They, uh, they decide at this point that they want to split up. Some are going to go investigate the attack, and the others are going to follow the tracks on the ground. Um, and so what I did here is I ran the main encounter from Sagebrush Horror, where 
they follow the tracks to uh, what appears to be an abandoned church on the outside of town. But when they get inside, they discover that it's not actually a church. It is like the the output of a secret passage from that nearby secret facility. So I believe it was Abendroth and Rath McGrath and Morwood who went to investigate the uh, the church. And then it was Ladyana and Gregor who went to investigate the the paw prints. And so the canine paw prints led to a mine a mine shaft and they followed it down but they couldn't find the cause of it investigating the paw prints though they found a torn piece of cloth which will come into into play in the final act of this adventure meanwhile uh, morwood mcgrath and avondroth fall uh, went to the the church they followed the feline paw prints up there and they discovered it was an exit from the the facility and after the chaos they had caused at the facility uh it has a couple of of agents and uh a martian but in this i don't have them dressed as martians right away i'll describe that in a second and they are uh they're using this to run yet another one of their weird experiments. They have a creature that is, it's a displacer beast, but I didn't call it that. And uh, they're they're tormenting the, the, the town with it, basically. So, um, Abendroth, Morwood, and McGrath show up. They have, they just don't have any tact. <laughs> they're not, they were not a party that, like, did... Uh, a lot of planning when it came to like, okay, we've arrived at this location. How are we going to get in? Um, they all, Avendroth has like his planning ability, but he always did it sort of on a grander scale where he's like, our plan is if you see this guy, then we're going to open fire. And it gives them like a little bit of a bonus. Uh, it, it had to do with his planning feat. Like he had to do his plans in all these broad strokes so they could be applicable in the most situations. Because the more specific you get, the less likely those specific circumstances will line up to give you the bonus. So here they are. They don't really have a plan. They decide they're just going to bust into this abandoned church and look around. They bust in and they find like two German soldiers and then a Martian uh, who is not immediately detectable as a Martian. In this one, when they're on Earth, I have the evil Martians dressed like uh, Cyphermen from the Invisibles. So... Okay. Like long cloaks and sort of gas masks on. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so they find like this weird guy in a gas mask, two German soldiers, and they're like wrangling a displacer beast back into some kind of box that they use to contain it. It's funny. I was going to ask like what impression your players have of Martians at this point. Like do they assume Martians are good guys because of the background of the last game? Do they have any idea of the division in the Martian society? But really, I mean, if you just see a creepy guy in a cloak and a gas mask, that's, you know, all bets are off. Exactly. Yeah, that, that really simplifies it for them. And at this point, like, I, I can't tell you exactly. I don't remember it precisely. But I would wager that my players generally trusted Martians because the Martians that they encountered that weren't like masked up or anything are all the high Martians who are their allies and very receptive to being diplomatic and things like that. Abendroth knows that there are other races of Martians, but, uh, but you know, it's, it's one of those things. It's almost like, uh, 
like I don't know colonialism like downplaying the the awful things that Americans did to Native Americans kind of a deal so the the high Martians really downplay any wrongs that have been committed against hill Martians or low Martians so while Abendroth is like aware of the other Martians they really just think of the Martian race as being mainly the high Martians and so when they are confronted by this guy in a gas mask they don't even realize that he's they they think he's probably human um, even though they know that there's this martian alliance brewing and unless they see his face they probably just assume he's human um so they have an encounter i just run some cool combat in an abandoned church which is a really fun little you know combat encounter setting lots of features that you can use like hiding behind the pews going up to a higher level uh just you know hiding behind the pulpit it makes for good combat and uh, a displacer beast it's one of my favorite creatures i always love them they blink around they're terrifying to look at it's fun busting one out as like a cthulian horror versus just a fantasy monster um and yeah and like i said ladyana and gregor came up short in their investigation trying to find the wolf the huge wolf that was that they're pursuing but they did find this scrap of cloth and so um, at the end of the combat, actually, I should note that they didn't kill the Martian guy in the gas mask. They took him captive, and his interrogation comes into play in the next adventure. Um, so they take him captive, everybody regroups back at the lantern, they throw the Martian guy into the brig, and, uh... And then they just sort of do a debrief because they've been, their their characters have been adventuring all night. They did the facility, they did the investigation, and they fought you know several combats. They're just totally exhausted, so they crash for the night. And the next day, for plot purposes, that's when the quick draw tournament is happening. And uh, Lady Anna, of course, really wants to take part. Morwood also wants to take part in the uh, in the poker tournament side of things. And so, uh, what is decided is that McGrath and Abendroth are going to interrogate the prisoner. Again, I role-played their interrogation in the next one. They interrogate the prisoner with Quellen's help, uh, while Lady Anna and Morwood take part in the tournament. And so the tournament, I because some of my players weren't going to be, well, some of the characters weren't going to be present for it, didn't want to bore my players, so I just ran it pretty quickly. I had three other guys in the tournament, and it was just a few series of quick encounters because, you know, it's quick draw and then poker. Uh, fairly easy to use things like the gamble skill um, in lieu of actually having them play. Um, I should note that uh, I have all my stats for the different people that Lady Anna encounters in the quick draw tournament, and in reading back over them, I can tell you exactly where I am lifting, like, names and characters from. I have uh, Clay Cantrell, a uh, guy with a big mustache who smokes a long black pipe that has a metal cap on top of it. His gun is attached to his hip on a hinge instead of in a holster. Um... I stole him from The Quick and the Dead. <laughs> He's right out of the movie The Quick and the Dead. That's the, the Keith David character. And then I have uh, Cormano, who is a bearded Mexican with a big sombrero. Uh, he hides his hands under his poncho, which gives him a faint maneuver, a contested bluff check. 
Uh, and if he succeeds, he gets initiative first to fake the, to fake you out before drawing. But the the image and the name Cormano, that's from a classic video game, an arcade game, Sunset Riders, which I was a big fan of back in the day. Still a really good one, a, a fun little run and gun game. Um, and then of course, Nathan Garrett is also one of the competitors, and uh, Lady Anna. And it finally gets down to Lady Anna and Nathan Garrett as the two finalists in the quick draw competition. And she notices that he is wearing a shirt that has the same, it's the same kind of cloth as the scrap of it she found. It's even like torn on the side. And so she doesn't kill him. She only wounds him and then they take him prisoner as well. And they're going to interrogate him. So the next, uh, the next adventure opens with this big interrogation of their two prisoners to finally get a few more answers, I suppose. Did they uh, do any sort of experimentation trying to figure out if he reacted to silver or anything? They didn't, no. Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell you everything that they tried on our next episode when I talk about Chapter 5. But uh, I was just imagining, like... Somebody tries to pass him a bullet or something, and it's silver, and he's like, no. And they're like, aha, we're on to him. <laughs> no, well, that was the thing, Sounds right? Like they knew that there was a werewolf involved, but it wasn't until... Well, they suspected, right? Sorry? Like, they didn't know that a werewolf was involved. They just That's suspected right. it, right? They suspected a werewolf was involved, and it wasn't until uh, she, Lady Anna was showing down with Nathan Garrett that she noticed that his shirt matched the cloth she found, and suspected that he is the werewolf. So she just, she harms him, but she doesn't kill him, and they take him on board as well, and she won the quick draw tournament. Huzzah! And that was it. That's sort of where it, uh, where it wrapped up, and that was also the, the wrap-up of the San Francisco hub. My plan was for the next one to... Uh, to head off to a new location and give my players a few more other, a few more options of where to go, and they still have to go to Brazil, which was foreshadowed a few adventures ago. Now, it's funny. Uh, um, you mentioned the sort of uh, historical analog of like the colonialism before, but I think one thing that this campaign in particularly really captures well is the kind of like. Again, this is like you you have obvious connections to League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and whatnot, but there's a certain kind of like, you know, early 1900s pulp fiction where it's like, you know, secret agents that are working with uh, international and foreign agents. But there's a lot of sense that like there's a lot of sense of mystery, like no one ever knows what the. Uh, Chinese agent actually represents or anything. We just know that he's not like us in that in the context of that story. Absolutely, I was um, drawing another major si similar. Another major inspiration was uh, Sky Captain on the World of Tomorrow, which is exactly that. In fact, it's like too pulpy, and it didn't. I don't think people really got Sky Captain when it came out because it went too pulpy with its source material. It also goes back to like Lovecraft and Lovecraft always using this sort of image of like the suspicious uh, Middle Eastern, like like he's always he always has a a foreign guy that you're supposed to be inherently afraid of because he's foreign. But there's something really good about the analog of having 
that sense of alienness, but having it actually be an alien, like the way the idea of capturing a Martian agent and being like, well, we have to interrogate him and then bringing in Quelln because Quelln actually knows what's going on. It just like it feels so in genre to me. Um, oh, I'm really glad to hear that. Uh, I, I really it occurs like to me it. Tintin is another major inspiration for, for this one. That globe hopping stuff. And I've also mentioned it also, uh, Temple of Doom, of course. It also recalls like uh, recent stuff that's happened in the show Peaky Blinders, even though that is more focused in its own genre. Like it has, you know, it always has this sense of like the mysterious other that comes from another nation. And. Uh, Similarly, the show I quite like, uh, Warrior, which Hell is yeah. about uh, Chinese people in San Francisco, which brings us right back to that. Yeah, absolutely. It, oh, man, it would be really neat to do <laughs> if I were ever to do the 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 RPG universe thing and revisit the campaign setting of Minds and Metal and Wheels. It'd be really neat to do like a martial arts themed campaign and have just that tiny bit of crossover where all the characters are in San Francisco at the same time. That'd be awesome. Is it time for our trip to the tavern? I suppose. Over to the non-Euclidean tavern. Man, this place always makes me dizzy. Not me. <laughs> I I gotta um maybe I should stir because this dang old dragon magazine is like falling apart in my dang old hands. Yeah, get it quick before it disintegrates. I'm telling you, man, this is uh, Dragon Magazine 174, October 1991. And I was mentioning, like, so I got I to gotta dig through a big old bin or chest where I keep all these things under my bed. And, like, I don't... My room's pretty cluttered, so I don't want to, like, actually get the whole bin out or whatever. So a lot of the times I just reach under the bed, I pop the bin open... And then I reach in and I pull out a magazine. But, you know, I was worried that, you know, maybe I'd just always be pulling out the same magazine because it's just at the top. Or always be, you know, maybe a certain section of the bin is a stack of magazines that are all from a certain era or something. So, like, maybe I'd always be getting the same kind of magazines and stuff. So I want to make sure that I wasn't, like, pulling another white dwarf or something or another... Uh, post-2000 Dragon magazine. But you can feel it out with your hand, man. You can feel uh, the the White Dwarf magazines have the more um, sort of rectangular shape to them. Their, their spines are a bit more firm, whereas, like, the Dragon magazines are kind of curved spines, like, like old... Uh, notebooks or like old modules and so they have a tendency to like they feel different and then they have a tendency to disintegrate a lot more because it's more like obviously just like stapled and stuff and uh so i've got this one it's like the co the the jacket covers like like the 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 cover in the back is just about like right to pull off man pull off from its staples but i'm holding it together i'm keeping it together uh, as I mentioned, it's a it's an October issue, which pretty much always means with these things that's going to be some sort of Halloween issue. 
Interestingly enough, the other Dragon Magazine I pulled was also a, an October issue. You know, normally, normally I hate that kind of tie-in to like, oh, it's the season, got to do the Christmas one. Never, I never mind the Halloween ones. Always love the Halloween ones. Well, yeah, I mean, um, this one also, I guess they had uh, they had some crazy Ravenloft stuff going on at the time, because uh, so on the cover we got an elf. He's over like a a warrior woman um, who appears to have died in a graveyard. And like there's a ghost looming over him with a lantern and he's got his sword out like stay back. Um, And it says at the top, you haven't a ghost of a chance in Ravenloft. (laughs) $3.50 American time of ravenloft man like there's a topic for like a whole other episode i could talk endlessly about the ravenloft stuff i mean right in the inside cover we've got an ad for a novel set in Spelljammer. um we've got an ad for some tsr we got the complete dwarves handbook we got ravenloft touch of death uh you know, we got ads for we got an ad for Gen Con ninety one or or an article about I it. used to have uh, the PC game for DOS, Ravenloft Strahd's Possession. Ooh, that's that's actually uh I haven't heard so much about that one. I know a lot more about um some of the other ones. Anyways, so uh this had a whole section and basically I'm gonna I'm gonna jump to a section where they had some special Ravenloft monsters called Out of the Mists. Uh, it was just three of the monsters, but I want to take the coolest one and just give the rundown for it. But it also has powers that refer to another section in the magazine, which is titled Are You Having Bad Thoughts? Um, which has some phenomenal, creepy, surrealist imagery and uh, is covering psionics in the warped world of Ravenloft. So, our means of entry into this topic is the psionic lich. He looks badass. He sounds badass. Let's see. There are few who would dare to argue that the power of a master psionicist is any less than that of an archmage. Indeed, proof of this can be found in the fact that the most powerful psionicists are actually able to extend their lives beyond the spans granted them by nature, just as powerful wizards are known to do. Psionic liches look much like their magical counterparts. Their flesh has been mummified with the passing of time, pulling it tight over their bones and giving them a gaunt skeletal appearance. Their eye sockets are empty and burn with crimson pinpoints of light like smoldering embers. Often, a psionic lich will be found in the clothes it favored in life. It'd be cool if that was, like, backwards baseball cap. Anyway. Um, Because this can be anything from the grand robes of nobility to the plate armor of a mighty knight, it is impossible to spot these creatures by their garb. Metallic armor, if worn, will lower the lich's psionic power score as per the complete psionics handbook, page 16. Small shields will not do so. Eh, that sounds dumb. (laughs) <laughs> psionic liches retain the abilities that they, they learned in life languages proficiencies thieving skills etc further a psionic lich who was human may actually have been a dual class character in life and thus be able to employ psionic powers plus magical or clerical spells 
if your DM is a huge dick <laughs> or if it's a very cool character, I'll, I'll admit. Creatures with such abilities are rare, thankfully, but are truly terrible opponents. Again, that's up to the DM. But um, what I wanted to go into was some of its neat psionic powers, which are covered in the Are You Having Bad Thoughts section. So, let's see what we got. We got ourselves uh, Aura Sight. This power can never reveal the good or evil portion of a character's alignment. The true evil of a... Oh, wait. The dark swirling mists of Ravenloft obscure all creatures' abilities to see the truth. For spellcasters, their divinations spells are weaker, less able to tell good from evil. Nothing is quite as frightening as the unknown. In Ravenloft, evil is always assumed but never surely known until it may be too late. So Aura Sight... This power can never reveal the good or evil portion of a character's alignment. The true evil of a, of a creature or character is hidden in the demiplane of dread. Using this power reveals only the lawful or chaotic part of his al alignment. Interesting. So this is almost not so much rundowns on these abilities as it is like weird modifiers that Ravenloft creates. Um, though it seems to be a bit of a mix because we've also got like... Uh, it has the psychokinetic devotion animate shadow, uh, which animate shadow. Beware of giving life to anything made of darkness when you are in Ravenloft. On a roll of twenty, the animated shadow is imparted with a little of the substance of the demiplane of dread. It becomes the monster of the same name and seeks to kill the character. Oh man! If you animate shadow, it becomes a killer shadow, man. Hashtag Game of Thrones. Man, crazy stuff. We got Death Field. Sucking the life from a humanoid creature like marrow from the bone may allow it to return from the grave to haunt the character. The type of undead creature is usually whatever undead creature most closely matches the hit dice of le or level of the creature killed. Regardless of the creature's original hit dice, there's a 20% chance that the dead being will walk again as a revenant. The Death Field is a direct channel to the negative material plane. Any undead creature inside such a field actually recovers as many lost hit points as it was supposed to lose. Using this power requires a Ravenloft powers check for the user. This is all very interesting to me because, uh, as you may know, Ravenloft was the fourth major adventure setting for 5th edition. So um, it's very possible some of this saw some direct crossover, although I looked up the psionic lich and... Uh, Perhaps, thankfully, it does not appear to have been reprinted with the uh, new visit to Ravenloft. But, you know, everything about those mists could still apply. The mists are still very present. And the shadows. That, too. All right, I'm going to put this magazine away before it falls apart in my hands. What do you got going on? So, um, you and I were talking recently off the air about our episode where I talked about Nightbane. And uh, I thought, hey, you know what? Let's go back to Palladium and let's uh, pull out another wacky character creation table similar to Nightbane, but this one is from the main book of Rifts uh, and it's for the Crazies OCC. 
Do you remember the crazies? Do you know them? Oh, I love the crazies. I know the crazy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, in fairness, I love all these insane classes like juicers. It's like, yeah, you've, you're super powerful, but you've only got seven years to live or some insane thing. Like, I always thought juicers were a bit cooler than crazies. Um, crazies. I'll read the, the opening blurb. I mean, in fairness, is anything as cool as a full mech? I probably not. <laughs> like a combat Borg? Yeah, the cyborgs, when, certainly when I first discovered rifts in grade six, the cyborgs were what really drew me in. But uh, crazies, the warriors known as crazies are a cross between ninja masters and raving lunatics. They are trained warriors schooled in the arts of combat and athletics. They are augmented through the, impl the implantation of tiny electromagnetic devices placed in the brain. The MOM works, or mind over matter works implants, the mom implants. Uh, the worst side effects uh, is that the subject becomes increasingly psychologically and or emotionally unbalanced, hence the name crazies. So uh, juicers from rifts are like super sol- well, the juicer program was designed for super soldiers, think something like Captain America, except it went mainstream, and so People just juice themselves into superhumans using drugs. Well, crazies are a similar thing, except they're doing it with brain implants. And instead of juice, you know, juicers burn out after a short period of time because they're straining their bodies to the limit. Well, crazies, they just get crazier and crazier. And so the crazies OCC, I just, I've, I thought that this was hilarious when I was younger. It's still pretty damn funny, but now... Now when I look at it, I'm like, man, this is kind of be a pain in the ass to deal with. Um, so crazy is the funny thing is that as they increase in level, they get nuttier. So everything is fine initially, but as time goes on, the character gets increasingly more disturbed. At second level, roll once on the phobia table. At third level, roll once on the affective disorder table. At fourth level, roll on the crazy hero tables. This can lead to multiple personalities and all types of maladies. At seventh level, roll on an obsession table. At ninth level, the neurosis table. At twelfth level, the psychosis table. And at fifteenth level, a random insanity. It's just like, it's too much. One of these things is enough, let alone so many. But the... So, what? What? now the game we're going to play here, are we going to pick... Are we going to roll each of those things? No. I So the crazy hero has its own section uh, in this, this part of the Rifts book. The creation of a wacko character is easy. He or she is designed exactly like any other character in Rifts, determine the attributes, etc. The twist comes in how the character sees himself or how some random crazy element affects his or her life. And so what they've done is they've provided percentile tables to help you roll up your crazy. So we're going to do the random crazy element table, and then we'll find out what wild psychosis the character suffers from. I, I want to uh, spice this up with an added an added layer. Is I have um, from the Rifter issue zero a list um, basically compiling every skill that was listed across Palladium products at the time. And so after we generate this character, I'm going to generate a random skill that is going to be his like specialty. Ah, sounds good. This is like we're, we're just ultimately building up to a they fight crime style generator. 
<laughs> All right. So first I'm going to roll on the random crazy element table. And I've rolled an 83, which is multiple personalities. So this is like another series of tables. So step one, I'm rolling again for how many separate personalities? I rolled a 95, so six separate personalities. <laughs> this is already too complicated. Like, I'm already regretting doing this. Uh, let's see, three, four, five, and six. So who is the dominant personality? It'll be personality one. Um, name, alignment, player's choice of principled, scrupulous, or unprincipled disposition, roll or pick from the optional rules section, uh, rejects the belief of having a split personality, so each of these personalities are unaware of the other personalities. Oh my god, what have I done? Okay, um, I'm gonna skip the alignment because that's uninteresting. We're gonna go for, we'll just... Bet it's chaotic neutral. <laughs> well, we have six different personalities, so I'm just going to roll once on each. There's a separate table for each alignment. So, like, personalities of good alignment, personalities of evil alignment. Um, so I'm just going to I'm gonna roll a couple times. I'll roll three times on each. We'll have three good and three evil. So first up, uh, 86 is... The opposite sex. <laughs> Pick from a roll on the optional rules disposition table. We're going to be here all night. I'm just going to do... <laughs> We're going to be here all night. There's a whole other table for this. May or may not use any of the super abilities. Oh my god. Um, let's do one evil one. It is... I got a 60. Uh, a megalomaniac. Arrogant. Feels far superior to all others. Mean, cold, and calculating. This personality is totally self-serving. The means justifies his ends. There's only the wrong opinion and his opinion. Those who ignore or chastise his opinion are either fools or potential enemies. This person is like a one-character complete party. You're going to have all the different personalities, all the different character classes. Uh, so there we go. We've got a, megal a, megal a megalomo... Oh my god, I'm dying here. Megalomaniac. And a member of the opposite sex are two of the six personalities that take hold when, when, uh, a, when a severe shock or trauma. <laughs> there we go. So when when a severe shock or trauma is experienced, random control takes hold. There's even a table on on determining which personality takes random control. It's easy, they say. You ready for this? How easy do you think this is, Tom? Um, I, I, I mean, him. All right, let's see know. if you can I, keep up here. Nothing okay. is ever truly evil, easy in, in Palladium. <laughs> Determining which personality takes random control is easy. If you have two personalities, one to three represents the dominant personality, and four to six the other, secondary personality. Three personalities, one to two is the dominant, three to four is a secondary personality, five to six the other. If you have four personalities, one to three represents the dominant, three, four, and five, and six each represent one of the secondary personalities. Five personalities, one to two is the dominant, then three, four, five, and six each represent one of the other personalities, and finally, six personalities, 
one is dominant, whereas two, three, four, five, and six each represent one of the other personalities. Assign a numerical designation to each personality and roll a six-sided die to determine which is in control. I feel like we, I feel like we were like, we it defeated us when we got six yeah, personalities. Really like did. we were already way over the deep end when we had six personalities. I mean, it did defeat us there, but I think the real like nail in the coffin was when there was a whole other table. If you got the opposite sex personality where it's like, you have to pick a role on the optional rules disposition table. It's like, Oh my God, man. Like, how many I mean, different tables are there? I'm kind of bummed that we got the multiple personality one, though. I was really hoping we'd get the power by association Popeye syndrome, so where the character believes that a random power food is what gives them their power. And guess mm, what? Cheetos. There's a whole personality, a whole percentile table for that too. I'm rolling on it, so my special food is raw rhubarb. Ooh, raw rhubarb is gonna give you the power to have a skill in light energy weapons from system failure. Probably also give you a rash. Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh my god, this uh, blew up I... in my face. I thought this was going to be way more interesting, but it became a chore. It sounds like classic palladium. God, and all of that comes after making a fucking palladium character. OCC skills, OCC related skills, WP ancient choice of two, WP modern choice of two. Hey, do you want to take, uh, do you want to take woodwind instruments or whittling? <laughs> you get fifty percent in in oh, either. Oh God, uh, let's go for whittling because then I can whittle myself a wood woodwind instrument. Well, I mean, it's something Which I, I always can't ran into play. with these <laughs> with these palladium classes. I'd always run into it as like you everybody gets a choice between like minor skill in one of two completely useless skills and it's like well i guess i would have it that's like poison for a new role-playing game character like it's that typical like i have 10 knives i have a rope i have like if you tell them they have whittling this is gonna become a game about whittling <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Where they're like, I have whittling. What can I whittle? I have a knife. Is there wood nearby? Oh my god. I want to commence the whittling minigame. Man, they should, uh, that's, that's how uh, Palladium should have done it, is they should have made their, first of all, their Rifts uh, video game should not have been uh, exclusive for the Nokia N-Gage, but going beyond that, um, it should be a game in which there is a mini game for the whittling skill. Yeah, there totally should be. Just to round off this section on crazies, uh, I will read one more thing. So here's here's the funny question for you, Tom. Uh, can you name some like characters from pop culture who would fit into the character archetype of the crazy? Uh... Like, uh, it was Deadpool? Is it Deadpool? Yeah, Deadpool's the one that, like, comes to mind immediately, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. So, right off the bat, the description of the crazy puts Deadpool in your head. And they, as I said, give you several different options here. The random crazy element table, uh, the options are frenzy, where you basically have, like, a 
Is he going to have a thing where you can, like, break the fourth wall in your role-playing game? <laughs> Gosh, you know, it might happen. Uh, anyway, so the four options on the random crazy element table. Frenzy, which gives your guy a berserker rage that is triggered by, you know, some crazy thing like intense frustration or intense pain. Uh, there's power by association, which is the Popeye thing I was telling you about. Uh, sometimes it's like daytime complex or nighttime complex or a magic object or power words. Uh, multiple personalities is self-explanatory. And then the last one is just called the crazy man. And the crazy man is just like Deadpool, basically. The crazy man hero is a wild, flamboyant, and jocular character. A cross between Daffy Duck, Errol Flynn, and a stand-up comic on speed. Zany, dynamic, caustic, and hyper. See, the crazy man should literally have a statistic thing where they can break the fourth wall to some extent. They really should. Like, I mostly find it funny that after all that, like, we're, we're describing this particular type of character, and I'm like, who does this sound like to you? And you go, Deadpool. And then I go, well, there's even a subclass where it's like, if you can't decide, just be Deadpool. <laughs> really, that, that Daffy Duck thing makes me imagine, like, a crazy who has, like, impossible cartoonish abilities that lets them, like, draw a tunnel. It's, and it almost, the crazy man almost it. sounds more like the mask than Deadpool. Yeah, ooh, that's a good one play a mask rpg i think you'd get you'd get into the same trouble as with something like tune where, where it's like what what are we doing here what are the stakes well did you ever read the mask cartoon or not not the cartoon the i'm comic a big book? fan of mask comics and i do have that uh i guess it would be yeah, pretty so fun like, you could fight gangsters and stuff and have it be really over the but top you know what the problem is there's only one mask that's the thing I was thinking is like you'd have to do it like White Wolf did with Promethean where it's like a, a mask is like a type of thing. Like like in Promethean, what they did was like they decided that Frankenstein's monster golems from Jewish like mythology, um, like uh, the story of Pygmalion, like these were all stories of the same type of monster, which is like a human, an artificial human. Um, so I could see White Wolf spinning it. It's like mask, the maddening. And it's just like five different types of mask dude that makes, gives them crazy yeah, power. Exactly. <laughs> it starts to drive them insane. I mean, you know, this is, I, I catch myself here because I'm about to say, one of those things that like only DMs say. But you know what would be a neat idea for a campaign to run? Is you run a campaign where all the heroes are like cops and they're trying to get the mask. They're trying to track down the mask and he keeps making them fucking Well, dance. like the mask is like the villain of the story. Because of course, you know, you don't have... Yeah, there's only one mask. All the mask comic books are focused on not only the mask causing chaos, but people always want to try and get that thing. I, I just I just am like when you say playing as the police and then in the context of the mask, I think of the musical scene in the movie where he's just like magically making everyone yeah. dance. And <laughs> well, I did also say <laughs> I caught like, well, myself the players wouldn't enjoy as I was that. saying it, realizing like, no, this is a fun idea for a DM. But players would not go in for this. May, yeah, make charisma saves or you all have to tango with the villain. Yeah. And I mean, I guess it depends win. on who your players are. <laughs> <laughs>
have a lot of tango enthusiasts. Maybe they'd get behind it. Some kind of mask LARP at a dance studio. Not me. Not me. I'll tell you that much. You know, for the longest time, I, yeah. I claimed I didn't have a catchphrase. And then as I was editing episodes, I realized I do have a catchphrase and I say it frequently without thinking. So there you go. What was your catchphrase? Level up your characters. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Um, so level up your characters, folks. You heard it here. Do your DM a favor. Man, in uh, in Chaos Earth and some other Palladium products, there was a mechanical skill called Bioware. Did it let you make, you uh, make quality RPGs? Well, up until uh, Anthem got involved. Hey, oh, uh, that is an unfair shot to a sad, beaten horse. The perfect way this to is end. Tom Lando saying. This was session 15, episode 16. If you want to get at me about how unfair that remark was, you can reach me on Twitter at narnog, N-A-R underscore N-O-G. If you want to leave us hate mail on Facebook, McGill will probably say, see that. We're comparing campaign on Facebook. Man, that would be fun. Have, send us uh, a hate mail. Send us a hate mail about how Bioware is amazing and perfect, and I shouldn't say a bad thing about it. And um, then you can uh, check out our WordPress, Word, uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. We're in the process of updating. Anything else? Level up your characters. Hey, yeah. Take care, guys.